Welcome to the Gay Buddhist Forum, where teachers from all schools of Buddhism offer their perspectives on the Dharma and its application in modern times, especially for LGBTQI audiences. These talks are offered freely to the world and made possible by appreciative listeners. If you would like to support our efforts to share the Dharma with underserved audiences, please visit gaybuddhist.org. There you can donate, find a list of upcoming speakers, or enjoy many hundreds of these recorded talks dating back to 
First of all, I just want to thank everyone for being here. Um, thank Jim for the invitation. I don't know where he is, but thank you so much. Um, I think I was last in this space maybe eight years ago, uh, not on a Sunday morning, but at another, at another sit. I think I also attended groups of Viradhamma upstairs, I believe, uh, a few nights of the week. Um, what I want to talk about today, I think, is something that's really central to all of our practices and all of our lives. And it's also a topic that I think sometimes is overlooked in practice. Sometimes we sort of apply practice kind of onto who we are in a way that may or may not be that sensitive to who we are. Uh, so I don't know how many folks have seen the title of the talk, but it involves the word stabilizing, destabilizing, analysis, and synthesis, which sounds like a big mouthful, but really isn't in our practice. I think each of us intuitively uh, practice these things in a way that either serves or doesn't serve us. Bless you. And if you can bring if we can bring more consciousness onto that element of our practice and that rudder of our practice, uh, then things can maybe be a little more effective as we grow and, and learn from the ways that we practice. So I think it might be helpful to start with what, I, what I'm referring to when I say stabilizing and destabilizing. Uh, there's, and maybe using my own personal practice would be most helpful. So, so there's times in my practice when I'm really vulnerable. I really, I'm really hurting in some way. Or I'm really emotional. For those of us that have done intensive retreats know that sometimes at the beginning of intensive retreat, they ask, are you going through something really psychologically difficult? And if we are, they sometimes suggest, well, maybe intensive practice isn't really for you right now. Um, sometimes it's not helpful to do intensive practice. So if we take that into our daily sit and into our daily practice, um, I think that wisdom can be really helpful in subtle ways. For instance, right now, I'm sitting in a group of folks that I, I hardly know. Many of you I don't know at all. And so I'm watching my inner experience in a way that says, well, what do I need right now? Do I need more warmth and holding? Or do I need to go deeper in some profound way? Do I feel like I'm connecting and making good amounts of eye contact and including you in this? Or do I feel like there's a line of maya between us where I'm, I'm kind of projecting myself as some teacher that is separate from you? So by watching all of that in this moment, I can decide or toggle well, do I need more love? Do I need more heart connection? Do I need more personal connection to the group? Or would it be helpful for us to dive into something? And there's no way to know that ahead of time. There's no way for me to have formulated a talk and then come in and say, well, this is what's true, and hopefully it resonates, and maybe it doesn't. And it's a living something. And this is a really good place to interject into the talk that this isn't a speech. Um, hopefully there will become more questions and things, and please feel free to interject whenever, whenever you feel like something is really ripe or confusing 
uh, or alive in your practice. So for instance, just really generally speaking in Buddhist practice, insight practice tends to be a little bit destabilizing. When we see some new bit of revelation, it can feel really good and it can feel opening, but it also shakes our worldview a little bit. We learn something that we didn't know. Concentration practices, or Brahma-Vihara practice, for instance, stabilize. So if we're doing you know, metta or mudita practice, there's more of a holding container there. And I think this is really important for Western practitioners to have some sense or some linguistic scaffolding of how to work with this. Because the analytical mind wants to figure things out. It wants to know things more fully. And there's nothing wrong with that. But if we only do that sort of practice, if we only have that way of being in the world, the synthetic, or as the Abhidhamma talks about, the synthetic holding piece, that each experience is a cohesive whole, that piece often gets lost, and that's the part that feels loving and warm, lets us do this insight practice or these inquiry practices in a way that doesn't feel violent to ourselves. You know, for about seven or eight years of my practice, somebody said, well, just do your best. Well, I interpreted that as try my hardest or be my meanest to myself. Might be another way to translate that. <laughs> you know, so it took eight years to say, well, maybe do my best could be translated a different way, like be nice. Maybe that's best. And so when we practice in a way that honors that oh, what do I need right now? I need to be challenged. Or no, definitely not now. I don't need to be challenged. Like, I just went through a hard stage in my life. The last thing I need is actually deepening. I need to fill out horizontally, sometimes in psychological language. I need to kind of fill out base here. And how do we know when something falls off the wall if it was meant to fall off? <laughs> something wants to be destabilized over there, obviously. So it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's responding to what is alive. And, and that's not so easy. So how do, how do we know whether we need more destabilization or we need to kind of pool our resources in a way that actually, you know, that takes a lot of refined kind of listening inwardly, like, hmm, do I need to know more right now? Or do I need to know less? And that's a hard thing for the Western, and I'm using Western Eastern, of course, it's, but, but for the analytical mind that wants to know, I want to know more about the Dharma, I want to read more texts, I want to, you know, I want, I want to deepen my relationship to the Dharma. In one sense, that happens on a personal life arc. But in one sense, you can't deepen your relationship to the Dharma because you're in the soup of it. And so how to honor that, wow, whatever I'm getting right now, I can rest in that fully. You know, maybe even as I talk, there's little moments of, wow, this guy's full of crap. Or, wow, that really resonates with my heart of hearts. And noticing, wow, that's all really good stuff for practice. 
Like sometimes when I begin a talk, I say, listen with a meditative mind, <coughs> which means don't believe anything you hear, right? Either, either it cycles through and is, feels embodied, or it feels like, oh, I, I, do I want to force this information into my system? Does it feel like an assault, or does it feel like it really kind of gives me traction in my practice in a healthy and helpful way? And so we each might even just check in right now. And don't do anything special to check in, right? We would, sometimes when we check in, we, okay, well, assume the position. Um, or, you know, make it look official. And just exactly where you are. Like. And if you have no idea what I'm talking about, fantastic. But curious. <coughs> do I need a little... A little more stabilization or destabilization in this moment. Do I need? Do I need a little less information, or would it be helpful to have just a little bit more information, just tiny bits? I'm really asking a lot from you. To sense into something that subtle. Like I can hear it in my voice when my voice cracks a little bit or trembles a little bit and I'm a little bit nervous up here. Oh, maybe I need a little sip of water. Or no, I feel like, oh, here's a place to forge ahead. Here's a, here's a place to go deeper. I had this cute little intro that was running through my mind during my meditation. That was gone. <laughs> Just right into it, right? Mm. Do we want the presenter, the seeker, or the speaker, excuse me, to say something that's helpful, or we just maybe hope that it's not helpful. Right? As long as it's not help, as long as it's not not helpful, it would be okay, right, to sit and listen. If it's helpful, great. If it just kind of just goes by without any bumps into me, then uh, hmm, that's okay too, because I feel at home. So analysis: when to cut things open. You know, like a doctor. A doctor doesn't just cut you open for no reason, right? They usually cut you open when there's an important reason to cut you open. But when not to be cutting ourselves open for no reason? Like when to accept, oh, I actually don't need to be cut open today. I'm feeling okay. I don't think I'll do any surgery on my psyche today. I feel pretty good today. And so what is it? On those days, maybe it's a bath instead of a, a sit. Like, I don't sit in formal meditation every day. That has changed a lot over the years, especially as my son was born and as more chaos arises. You know, before that, I was like, okay, hour and a half every day. Like, don't miss or you're in trouble, inwardly. And it's like, oh, well, was that, is that helpful anymore? You know, in psychology, for instance, we learn that in a certain context, 
the psychological structures that arose made sense, but now that we're no longer in that violent situation or difficult situation, our past behaviors no longer fit. So only by being present, only by practicing presence, can we see, well, should I stabilize or destabilize? And maybe you don't have any idea, and again, that's okay. But it's continually checking in. It's like it's like sailing. I don't know how many of you have sailed, but you know, you kind of pick a point on the horizon and there's no way you're gonna be able to aim for that point because water's wavy and watery. And so you gotta constantly be adjusting, constantly be tightening and loosening. And so how do we do that in our practice? Like when I'm feeling really destabilized and I just need metta for myself, sometimes for months. No insight. Insight's not good right now. It, does, it, it doesn't fit. Sometimes even metta. Metta's too much coddling sometimes. It's like, wow, I'm doing all this metta, and actually I'm kind of getting lethargic in the metta. I need some, I need some vira. I need some energy in there. And to whatever degree this resonates or doesn't resonate, really noticing, oh, even that maybe is an expression of the toggle of oh, I'm, I'm, I'm pushing, I'm really pushing, or I'm really pulling it in like, oh, this is the new answer, or this is definitely not the new answer. Like, even that is, a, is an indicator of, hmm, analysis or synthesis. Can I not be at war with it? But can I also not be overly identified with it? And so, for instance, in my work with clients, psychotherapy clients, you know, we're really trained to be able to do this. I, I, I don't think this languaging is really used, and I, I find it really helpful. I was trained in holistic counseling psychology, which nobody really knows what the word holistic means, <laughs> which is why I started the Journal of Holistic Psychology. I felt like it's, it's a living definition of what the hell are we talking about. Um, and so, well, what does this mean to be whole? What does it mean to be complete? Or like Shinra Suzuki's famous quote, you're perfect, but you've got lots of room for improvement. Like, what does it mean to feel perfect and synthesized, as in cohesive, but, and to be in that place and to move from that place that becomes expressive or becomes creative or becomes then innovative in its practice, and practice then becomes a celebration from that place, rather than I gotta, you know, I gotta fix something. And boy, this is a this is a repair project that is endless. <laughs> this is a nightmare bathroom that I'm trying to, <laughs> trying to remodel. And sometimes it feels like that, right? Like, oh God, the light went out now again. Mm. 
Is there a clock in here so I can have some yes. sense? Thank you. I was happy to see Carol Newhouse's uh, name on the website. She was my clinical supervisor for a year. Oh, she did. When was she here last? Uh, a few weeks ago, and she saw you on the bus and said, oh, it's coming. Oh, that's <laughs> neat, yeah. We had, it was a perfect match for a clinical supervisor because we could talk about a bigger container than maybe some of the others were talking about. So I'm going to pause for a bit. We're already at 25 minutes past 11, so I just want to make sure that I check in and see uh, how, how folks are with this or or what, uh, what, what resonates in your experience, because it's clear that anyone could switch spots with me and talk about their experience. That's all that I'm doing. Um, I have a little bit of training in this area, but, but anyone could switch spots and, and share something really profound. So, please. So, I like what you said about you know, checking in and just observing and assessing what you need mm -hmm. in the moment. How do you get better at that? Because I think a lot of um, teaching, a lot of paths are prescribed. And so I think we lose the ability to determine what we need. We just get concerned with following the instruction. Mm -hmm. you know? And we just try different sets of instructions. Mm -hmm. But we, I don't think we're really good at formulating our own um, path or you know, I speak for myself. So how, is, how do you get better at that? I have a feeling it probably takes a lot of practice. It does take a lot of practice, and it's really a great point, because it's because many of us, I think, come to practice, and it's, there's a little bit of relief to have practice, to have the map. Um, it's, it's, you know, I mean, it's, it's a great feeling to have the map, finally. Uh, at least it was for me. Um, and it does take a lot of practice, but there's also each one of us sort of has an intuitive inner compass that knows when something is off for us. Uh, now, maybe we've learned not to listen to that, or someone taught us not to listen to that. So, seated practice, in addition to sort of, well, am I swallowing a lot of, in practice, or am I doing something, or am I like coughing, or is, is something not perfect from my mind's perspective? So, so there's, that, there's that frame from which to see our practice, but there's another sort of frameless frame um, from which to see our practice. And that's, I find the body a really important indicator for whether I'm in integrity and in alignment with myself or not. Um, like, for instance, when I was driving over this morning, if I noticed myself holding my breath, um, I'm not integrity with this living organism. Something in me is either afraid of driving or I'm, you know, or I'm resisting sort of the flow of traffic, either I'm going too fast or too slow. Um, so I, I find the body the clearest indication of whether I'm moving from inside or I'm reacting to outside. And that can be in the physical world, but of course it can also be in relation to the Dharma. If the Dharma sort of becomes 
rule-based, and it, it's 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 so close. You you want those principles. You want you want everything that's beautiful about those twenty five hundred years of teachings to be supportive of your raft. Um, but your raft is also unique, and how to how to do that for me again is checking in with the body mostly. First foundation of mindfulness uh, is almost all that I practice. Uh, it will show a third foundation of mindfulness, and second, I mean, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral will arise, and you can practice second through four without any problem by just working on, on the body. Um, and a lot of that comes from my background as a yoga instructor as well. Uh, and it's my biggest challenge. It's why that piece of the practice is for me. It's like when you have a table with four legs and one leg is weak, you don't like strengthen the other three legs. You work on the leg that's weak, so that's the place of access for me personally is my own disconnect from my body. Um, for somebody else it might be, oh, the math and that way of thinking is really difficult, and for them their greatest thrust in their practice might be that. Only Each person will kind of find their weakest leg and like, oh, this is the leg that I would have a really strong table if that leg was equal to the other three. Um, it does take some years. Again, it took me many years of fumbling around in the dark. I mean, for at least the first three years, I was pretending to practice. I was pretending to meditate. I had no idea. I just said, this thing is, these books sound really great. I'm going to sit here for a half hour every day and most of the time pick my nose. And, oh, and then one day you grow into it. It's like, I think it was Rilke that said, living the questions, you live your way into the answers. Um, so that's where practice is really powerful. But just because it's a ride into kind of maturity of practice doesn't mean that we have to miss out on the benefits of early practice either. So that's, that's part of the reason for the talk is, is that the more we can kind of give the mind a structure that allows for the conversation to be had. We're talking about some pretty subtle things in stabilization and destabilization already. So just to be able to start to use those words, some of, those, some of that way of thinking for me came from <coughs> thoughts without a thinker, psychotherapy without a self. Um, I'm blanking on the author for some Epstein. reason. Yeah, Epstein's work. And, uh, and so that was really helpful to me to, oh, I can actually use my metta not only just to send loving kindness everywhere, which is, of course, infinitely beneficial, but I can actually serve my own personal drama um, and difficulty uh, in a way that, oh, I just got in an argument with my wife. Like, I need, I, I need someone to talk to. And if no one other person is there to talk to, I can talk to stabilization. I can, I can deepen my relationship to stabilization. Does that help at all? The key of that is the body, I think. Um, like, oh, I'm tight in my left hip a little bit in this moment. What might that mean for me? Am I, am I barking out these words a little more than I need to? Or can I soften my voice like I just learned how to do in this moment? Please. Oh, please. Can you talk a little bit more about insight meditation 
as a destabilizing form of meditation? Mm-hmm. I'm curious about that. Yeah, yeah. I uh, I found that the experience of new presence or even new content um, rattles my worldview a little bit. And when my worldview is rattled a little bit, I'm off-center. Just a little bit sometimes, sometimes a lot. When I moved to the Bay Area almost 15 years ago from the Midwest, a lot of people came up to me and they said, how are you doing? <laughs> like, how's it going for you? And I was. I was just like, oh my God, there's flow and creativity and diversity and freedom in a way that I had never known. And that was really destabilizing. And that destabilization came from an influx of new. And insight, whether it's quantitatively new, some new something, or whether it's qualitatively new, if we feel a little more expansive in our body or something shifts, um, it's usually welcome. But not always. And it's not always the right thing. Like maybe we're going through something really tough and... You know, it's like uh, I, a lot of the sitting practice I do is up at Spirit Rock, and they even say it at the beginning of intensive retreats, like if you're really going through something tough, maybe not. Maybe not a good time. Because of that separating quality, analysis, lysis means to cut. So when we analyze something, which is a lot of how most of us practice, we're cutting apart to see more clearly. Seeing clearly is really important, but the cutting element cannot always it's not always cohesive in a way. And so if we don't have that cohesive element to our practice, that wholeness to our practice, then we're just fragmenting all the time. And again, there's a time for that, but there's a time not too. Like how do we, for instance, the roles in our lives? We're all in different roles. We're in roles with our lover. We're in roles at work. We're in roles with our friends. And we're going to fluctuate a little bit between those roles. We're going to be a different person in each one of those roles. But if we're vastly different, sometimes that's a lot of fragmentation and that's hard to bear. You know, when I was younger, I drank a lot. And I was just fragmented all over the place because I was completely different people in different roles. You know, I'd be sitting, you know, I'd be out like partying for days on end without sleep. And then I'd be having a bowl of ice cream with grandma. And those were very different roles. And there was a lot of fragmentation. But even in little ways, we, we fragment. And to see if that's helpful. Wow, it's actually helpful for me to be in a situation where I don't really know what my identity is here as a speaker at the Gay Buddhist Fellowship. Like, that feels, that feels good at this time in my life. There might be another time of like, oof, boy, I can't take it right now. It's too much for me. And how to know that? How to bring that into the body and be like, how to say yes? I mean, there was something maybe about Jim's invitation and everything in my life was aligned. And it was just like, uh, obvious yes. It could have been different. It could have been like, wow, it's just not right. Something about it doesn't feel right. And how to trust that intuition, that inner intuition. 
how to really trust ourselves and rather than only being a seeker, be a finder. A seeker can never find, right? Because by definition they seek. So how to find? And how to do both? How just because I found, not to stop seeking. How to be both? Not either or, but both and. And that's the synthetic quality. We don't have to lysis, we don't have to separate seeker and finder so much. But to see when the portions are off, like, wow, I need 95% finder today. I just need to find my, my life in the way that it is today. And oh, well, I'm on retreat, so I want 75% seeker. And I'll find the familiar, like I'll, I'll see hummingbirds and things that have pleasant connotations and stuff like that. I don't know if that is helpful at all. Yeah. Anyone else? Oh, please, sorry. I really appreciate the, uh, your talk and uh, the, how deconstructive whatever this practice can be. But I also was really moved when you uh, discussed concentration and you know, the horizontal thing hmm. of it, um, and particularly around the addition of energy, because I find that uh, at a certain point, too much concentration tends to stall, and, you know, I want to knock off. How do you add energy at that point? By increasing the objects of your, of your awareness, or more mindfulness practice? That's a good question. Um, one of the ways is putting a little subtle emphasis on the in-breath. On the in-breath. On the in-breath, just... And the emphasis can be as subtle as just noticing the in-breath a little bit more than the out-breath. More or less gets fuzzy when it's subtle, right? So, so but just because the in is power here and the exhale is a little more acceptance and a little bit more release just energetically from a yogic perspective. Um, so affirmation, release. Um, so that can be helpful. Uh, it can be helpful to see where the energy is getting low or at, at what point. Is it be, is at the beginning of the metta? Is it at the middle or is it at the end? Is it when there's a certain phrase? Is it only in relation to when I'm giving it to myself or to others? When is it? And that sometimes just that amount of awareness can bring a little more interest. Uh, if boredom is there, fantastic because boredom, of course, is fascinating. And then it's gone, because you get interested in the boredom. <laughs> Being interested in boredom is a great antidote to boredom, right? And as Heidegger said, Heidegger said that boredom and anxiety were the two greatest access points to liberation. Because boredom is a form of anxiety. It's a subtle, subtle form of anxiety. We don't know what to do kind of shutting down. That's great. So, I don't know if that's helpful, but that, you know, for me that's like three years of instructions. Because <laughs> you got to practice something six months even to find out if it's garbage or not, right? Um, yeah. Please. First, uh, thank you. I found... Uh, a lot of what you've had to say very insightful, and one of them being, uh, you know, talking about how you can look at your body to see whether you have stability or instability. And I was thinking about 
how I had to move my chair today <laughs> because I couldn't get comfortable. And that was really the first time I had related that to this morning being, uh, I don't know, having an agitated mind for no particular reason. Mm. Uh, but my question is, and you know, you had mentioned you're driving over here in a car, and I don't know if this was an actual fact, you know, your breathing may have been disturbed or something mm -hmm. along those lines. So what is it that you do? I, I know that I had an agitated mind this morning. I know that my body was uncomfortable enough where I had to move my chair. I'm aware of it. I've investigated a little bit about why that might be. Uh, but what do I do to regain stability in this uncomfortableness? Or what would you do? Right? Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, and I mean, so the driving example is a real example. Um, and for me, there's kind of two key pieces, and one of them is just getting grounded, noticing where the subject meets the object. And I, I mean, if I'm, I'm in, a, in a physical sense, I'm, my body's a subject, and the, the floor or the cushion is the object in this moment. In the car, it's the car seat. You can't do really deep practice in the car because you're moving quickly and you don't want to close your eyes or you know, go inward completely. So, disclaimer. Um, but really noticing my sit bones or noticing how much my pelvis is torqued because one foot's on the gas and the other foot is just not doing anything. Um, Sometimes I put the left foot flat in that situation to bring the pelvis sort of back into alignment. A lot of people in our culture have out-of-alignment pelvis because of all that driving. Um, so that's one, one element, the getting grounded and noticing. Like even right now, just notice sit bones on chair, feet on the floor. Are they relaxed or are they gripping or pushing or what's going on? Yeah, all that stuff. And then uh, breath is really important. Like is breath impeded? Is it... You know, thoughts are connected to breath in some way. Um, my personal practice right now is mostly belly breathing because I spent almost 15 years um, doing, doing Uddiyana Bandha, which is the, the stomach lock in yoga, and so a lot of chest breathing. Well, that wasn't really very good for my lower back, actually, because I wasn't really letting myself slouch. And my practice is getting more and more slouchy as I practice. <laughs> <laughs> by, by design. You know, it's like uh, that's that's part of the concentration of holding. Like it doesn't help if I'm I look like a statue. You know, part of the reason a statue looks like a statue is because it's a statue. <laughs> you know, so we translate that though because we don't see the Buddha actually doing his practice. We see a representation which is beautiful, but it's going to be pretty still because it's not alive. And so we get this idea that practice is still totally still. But we're getting our information from images. You know, and that's where the Tibetans do a lot of rocking meditation, a lot of movement. So I don't know if that's helpful, but for me, keeping things really simple is helpful, and maybe that sounds counter based on the topic of this talk. But uh, grounding in breath. Is breath fluid? Or do I feel like I'm gasping? Or limited in some way? There was, uh, there, yeah. I understand how uh, there's certainly this potential for destabilization between sight because it can rock our world. So mm -hmm. But my own experience has been more towards a sense of relief in synthesizing mm -hmm. when I do have an insight. 
actually kind of go, ah, hmm. it feels like a coming together and uh, sort of a relaxation and a relief into that synthesis, mm-hmm. uh, that synthesizing of these two juxtaposing ideas, concepts, events, or even experiences are somehow coming together. Mm. And that feels like a kind of a sweet relief to me. Mm. Uh, so I'm, I'm curious how, uh, how insight has been destabilizing for you. Mm. Thank you. First, I want to address that that's great practice. That's what we want. We want the insight to be feel held um, in a way that there's full integration so it doesn't feel like the cutting. Um, it, even if it has that cutting nature, there's, there's sort of a a base of synthesizing happening, it sounds like, when you have that. So it sort of pools and goes wherever it needs to go, and there's connections being made through the cutting, actually. And I think that's pretty ideal. The, the point that I'm focusing on or bringing attention to is when practice gets overly heady and that synthesizing gets lost. Um, but if it can, if it can be an experiential embodied insight rather than a cognitive insight, and there's a whole span there, of course, there's a whole gradient, then it does feel more like a synthesizing insight. I, I too have had similar experiences where you know something just cuts apart, and it's like it actually just reveals that I was in a box, and that you know. It's, it feels great to have taken off that tight jacket. Um, a lot of the perspective, too, of insight being destabilizing comes from my work with clients. Um, and so sometimes somebody's in a really difficult place, and it's not particularly helpful for them to know more truth. It's sort of like looking at the sun. Um, you don't want to stare directly at the sun. You, you, you want to put on a pair of sunglasses or, or look sort of at an angle and grow your capacity to look at truth. So depending on how long a person has practiced, but yeah, that's a great point to make. Thank you. Please. Thank you, Jonathan. It's great to hear you today. Um, a couple things. First thing is... I'm kind of in the closet because I stopped meditating formally. I meditated for 25 years every day, pretty mm-hmm. much. And I decided, I heard from another teacher, Eugene Cash, why not make every moment a meditation? Mm-hmm. So I'm experimenting with that. And, but I have nothing against sitting, mm-hmm. but I decided to not stop doing it. So mm-hmm. it's been interesting thing, how we t- feel like we don't want to tell people that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it's a secret. Uh, it's a secret, right. Because <laughs> uh, I think it's really important that people do sit. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to, uh, you said something about the first year, three years you meditated and you kind of... Pretended. Pretended, but, but what I thought is intention is so important. And you had the intention for three years. And mm-hmm. to me, that was the most important. Hmm. To me, it's always intention, because I've had more lousy meditations than, you know, great ones. Mm-hmm. And to me, it's always intention. So mm-hmm. you want to speak about intention? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that in your example... Um, 
it's central, of course, in, in Buddhist teachings, and in my experience, it's, it's the intention. The important piece that I'm learning from my psychological studies, though, is I can intend not to offend someone and still offend them. So there's also that relational piece, that my intention doesn't fully matter in relationship, which is, which is you know, to play that edge, to you can intend the best, or I think it's a Thomas Merton quote where at some point in your life's work, you have to come to the terms that despite all your efforts, you may have created the exact opposite in the world to what you intended. And that's a really powerful thing. You know, someone like Mother Teresa works her whole life for world peace. She could have created a lot of discord. Or like my first time in India, I thought, oh, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to talk about Gandhi because this is safe territory. <laughs> terrible idea. You know, terrible idea. I mean, they're split right down the middle on Gandhi. Um, so intention is central. The capacity to uh, to check in, and, and like you were saying, for those three years, there was something that was hurting, that knew it needed to focus in some direction other than it had previously. Um, and even though, you know, I, I often use that phrase because with new meditators, they always think, of course, they're doing it wrong, or they don't know what they're doing. And of course. 17 years later, I still have no idea what I'm doing. And that's the beauty of it, that I'm going to sit down with beginner's mind and be totally confused and lost. And I like Eugene. Uh, the last retreat I did was with Eugene, actually. And, and that brings up continuity. Um, if we sit and we're peaceful and then we go kick the cat, well, look good. You know, how do we get continuity? And if we kick the cat, we don't get too hard on ourselves, like it happens. It's not ideal, but it happens. So thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I, I want to be really clear that these aren't answers, right? <laughs> okay. <laughs> these, are, these are the worst answers, so... Let them be bad answers, because you got to go practice, right? However that's going to be, whether it's just sitting here and like, wow, I'm getting uncomfortable, when, when, when can I have a cookie? <laughs> you know? Then, oh, okay, I need a little... That's where I'm at. Please. Yeah. Um, typically, when I visit my family... Um, they really mess with my schedule. <laughs> <laughs> my mother waits for me to show up to eat breakfast with her, so I don't get to meditate. And I don't know if it is just the strain of family dynamics, um, but that's those are the four days when I don't get to meditate. And I am pretty ragged mm-hmm. by the time um, I get home. Mm-hmm. And I always understand it as um, the a side effect of my greater meditation practice is that my stray, psychic, trashy noise um, doesn't get dealt with um, when I don't meditate. And, mm-hmm. and, uh, and so my anger is, is much closer to the surface. Mm-hmm. I've got much less play uh, involved. And I, I so appreciate your your dis, this distinction, which has never occurred to me. I mean, you, you, you meditate every day, and you take the bad news like a good sport, and try and you know mm-hmm. 
It's a, it's a beautiful point. It's, and it's nice to have your point juxtaposed with your point because both are good practice for where you guys are at. And that's the beauty of practice. You apply it. Whether it's, you know, we don't even have to use the language of the talk, but it, it, if it works for you, it works for you in this moment. Um, if it works for you, then great. Uh, I'll just share a, f- a couple of quotes, maybe. I think James Hillman said that family serves the regressive needs of the human psyche. <laughs> so I like that. Yeah, and then the other one is uh, family knows how to push your buttons because they're the ones who have installed them. <laughs> and it's true, and it was all installed unconsciously, right? They don't know that they installed them. It was just, that's why. They don't even have to look. The hand just goes like this, and it's just perfectly lined up with the button because you grew up in the same soup, in the same system. Um, so it's really fertile place to practice. And, and you see in those moments that, oh, there's... The, actually, when my practice is gone... I have, I have a very similar experience when I'm at home. It's like there's no place for me to practice. i got to, like, take a cushion from the couch and, like, hide. <laughs> you know? And, like... Because everybody else is just like, why would anyone want to be alone? You know, <laughs> like, like, you know, me, me and some mice in the corner over here. Um, and you know, it's really hard. And but in those moments, we're also given a little information. Practice is really helpful to me, but what is practice? And could I live without my version of it? in a way that might even be more helpful. You know, I mean, when I became a parent and there was very little time for formal practice for the first couple of years, I was just like kicking and screaming and things were bad because I wasn't getting my practice. And now, if I don't find my practice, if this isn't nurturing, if like this is stressful to come give a talk, and then I go home and I'm just like, I didn't get any practice this morning because I had to go give a talk to a Buddhist group, which would be ironic, right? <laughs> but it wouldn't be so unusual for someone to have that experience if they were caught up in some idea of what practice is. Then my idea of practice isn't helping me. It's not supporting me. So both are true. And so the idea, the idea that you gave was more stabilizing to you, and the idea I gave challenged your idea a little bit, so it's a little bit destabilizing. Like, can you question that? Would it be helpful? It might not be helpful to question that. You might be like, 
Boy, that is not helpful. And no one can tell you what that is but you by checking in. And you can kind of notice even, do you mind if I stay with this just for a second? You can even notice that as I talk more about it, if you feel like, oh, I, I need to subtly push that away. I, that, mm, or, mm, that might be helpful. I sense that you're right at the line between not quite sure if it's helpful or not. What's your experience? I'm intrigued. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. So that's, that's a fine tune. Please. Well, I'm so grateful for your presence and your talk. It's extremely evocative, and it's causing me to review my entire life. <laughs> Destabilize. Good. See? So we're learning. <laughs> shows me how on my path I've expanded and contracted and expanded and contracted in response to different spiritual teachers I've encountered and ways in which I've sought and ways in which I've dropped out and just decided I'm just going to forget about it for a while and inexorably being led back and I think of 1966 when I encountered Allen Ginsberg and he says don't listen to any other teachers, your heart is your guru. Hmm. How that resonated with me and enabled me to constantly find a checking point. Mm -hmm. But I've just come from our uh, annual uh, GBF retreat last weekend of which the theme was equilibrium. Equanimity. Equanimity. Mm. Equanimity. Which I think of as equanimity, but that may be a drug. Equanimity <laughs> 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 is related very deeply to what you're talking about. Mm. Mm -hmm. And whether one is seeking it or finding it, it has a place in this relationship dance of not too much attraction, not too much aversion, keeping yourself, constantly ch checking in on yourself and keeping yourself balanced. Hmm. So, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it reminds me of the Goethe quote, uh, trust yourself and then you will know how to live. Yeah. yeah. And that's the challenge when we receive teachings, it feels like there's something from the outside initially. And then at some point, you know, I went to a yoga class once with a very famous yoga teacher. And it was a huge room. And the room was basically divided down the middle. Students were in one half. He was in the other half. And I was like, uh, this is Maya. Like, this is the illusion that teachings are over there in that half and students on this half. And it was, it was just so strange that that was happening. And we maybe even were talking about this, you know, this very subject, about taking teachings personally. You know, there's not much in life that a Buddhist should probably take personally. But freedom, 
is the one thing that you should take totally personally, that freedom is possible. Um, and I think that that's what you're alluding to with equanimity. Um, it, ha it has that sort of substrate-like quality that then even things that look separate aren't because they're held in that balance or equilibrium. Yeah, it's noon. There, yeah. Yes. yeah. <laughs> Do we have any announcements today? Um, I'm going to be co-leading a workshop um, with my dear friend, the Laughter Deepa Angolia. And it's a workshop that uh, combines uh, mindfulness and playfulness, which is not something that we get to do a lot of the time and uses uh, those approaches to uh, look at death. And uh, the workshop is called Lightening Up uh, Around Death. We'll be using laughter yoga, uh, meditation, dance, movement, journaling, and other things to uh, approach death and dying with uh, compassion, adventure, and humor. <laughs> and. Uh, the workshop will take place on October 19th in Oakland, and I have flyers for it, and would be happy to talk with anyone who's interested during the social time. Yeah, next week our speaker is uh, Kevin Griffin, who has been here before. He has a wonderful uh, take on combining uh, mindfulness with uh, the 12-step program. Uh, he wrote a book called One Breath at a Time, and um, he's been here three or four times before he's a wonderful speaker, so that's next week. Yeah, I just wanted to announce a couple of opportunities for uh, deepening and expanding our practice, um, if you're interested. Uh, every Monday at 5.30, there's an LGBT city group at the, uh, the Gay Center at uh, KBF and Market. It's been going on for a little more than 11 years. It's kind of the same format as GBF. We sit in silent meditation for a half hour and a little bit shorter of a talk, 25 minutes or so, and a closing. A lot of us uh, here also go there, and it's a sweet way to start the week um, if you're interested. It's on the third floor at the Gay Center on Monday. And then also, the annual um, Spirit Rock LGBT retreat is coming up this December, uh, the 10th to the 15th. It's a five-night silent retreat that has been going on for many, many years, started in the mid-90s. And it's quite an amazing way to deepen, deepen your practice and in community, um, uh, being in the wonderful, wonderful place of Spirit Rock and with LGBT uh, teachers, Arena Weissman and uh, Pascal Eau Claire are the main, uh, main teachers. Uh, there's a sliding scale and scholarships, and if you're interested, you can uh, just find out information on the website, spiritrock.org. It's, uh, it's quite, quite something, and uh, over the years, many, many of us at, uh, at GDF have, have attended. So, I'm your host uh, today, so I'm supposed to tell you there's refreshments on the table. You can have tea or water, but if you use the cup, please wash it and put it back in the drying rack. I'll be going around with the Donna Bowl. Suggested donations are 5 to $8, I believe. 
Um, if you're new and want to be on the mailing list, sign up. And some of us go to lunch at 12.30 and meet by the front door. Thank you. Jonathan, thank you very much. You've just been a mm. wonderful and valuable speaker, and I hope we see you very, very often here. Mm. Um, last weekend, um, the GBF had a fantastic retreat that Michael Murphy, in his stunning uh, record of seven hits in a row, ably uh, <laughs> uh, assisted um, by Jerry and Tom. And David Lewis was our wonderful teacher, and we all uh, learned a lot about equanimity. How many people were there as we treat? We have, it was a great, so, so Michael, thank you again for debating, especially. That's all right. Yes. So um, if you're familiar with Jennifer Berezin, she's mm -hmm. producing a concert on November 2nd. So it's called a Song for All Beings. It's basically a singing meditation. So if you're interested, please check it out. It's at San Rafael, November 2nd. Thank you. Hi. Um, today is our bi-monthly processing and, and fixing up the paper copies of the GBF newsletter to send out. We have a little less than, we have fewer than recently, a little less than 300, but at least two-thirds of those go to prisoners who have very limited contact with the world out here. We need a group of, I don't know, eight or more people after the, the uh, chat and chew here. Those people can stay so we can fold and stamp and label and do all that stuff, which takes less than an hour, usually. Can I see hands? I always like commitment. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, well, let's uh, have a closing. <laughs> <laughs> practice, may all beings have happiness and the causes of happiness. May all be free from sorrow and the causes of sorrow. May all never be separated from the sacred happiness which is without sorrow. And may all live in equanimity without too much attraction or too much aversion, believing in the equality of all that lives. <coughs> Thank you for listening to the Gay Buddhist Forum. If you would like to hear several new talks per month and be notified of upcoming speakers so you can participate live, please subscribe to this podcast, like us on Facebook, and join our mailing list by visiting gaybuddhist.org.